Welcome to this Peer Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides and transcript, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash EJU. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Lilly. Good evening, everybody. I am Dr. Marla Dubinsky from the Icon School of Medicine, and we welcome you to the CME Symposium entitled Most Patients with Ulcerative Colitis Can't Wait, the clinical, uh, the impact and clinical assessment of bowel urgency. So you're going to hear a lot from the three of us who are very passionate about this topic um, and hear a lot about what we don't know and what we need to learn and how we're going to be studying this topic um, moving forward. And the one word that I think really comes to mind is confidence. Um, I feel like my confidence is hindered by senses of urgency. Um, and I, and I question whether I can leave the house or, you know, I question is urgency going to creep up if I, you know, I'm going on a longer drive, if I'm traveling, um, if I'm, you know, can I make it through this work meeting or can I make it through a full day of class? Um, and then additionally, I really think it affects, relationships in general in my social life. And I hate seeming unreliable when, you know, I have to be late or I have to, you know, I guess about out of a, of a, of an, of an obligation, because if I'm, you know, if I had an episode of whether it was incontinence or just have been in the bathroom numerous times that day, it can be really tiring. Um, and so I think there's a need for speed because this is a very big issue. I think, you know, Emily sort of sets the tone for really why we're here tonight. And for those of you who are interested and want to learn more about it, I think Emily hit on everything we don't ask about in the clinic. The idea of not being reliable, not wanting to leave the house, not wanting to make plans. I don't think we really think about that. Um, when we are sitting in front of our patients. So I'm going to show you a lot of data on what happens when we ask patients other than Emily. So just to frame it, reminder of what bowel urgency really is, and it's the sudden and immediate need to have a bowel movement. But I think part of the problem, and we've even struggled when we've talked about how do you define it, what are the right questions to ask, did we ask the right questions even when we... Uh, did it through the confide survey just to remind you that you know patient reports bowel urgency is a very important part of our symptom burden for ulcerative colitis and they distinctly noted that it's different in terms of the way they think about its impact versus rectal bleeding and stool frequency which as we know is the only bar that we've held ever, every clinical trial for every drug that needed to come to the market. They needed to reduce rectal bleeding and stool frequency, but had zero discussion on urgency. I mean, the idea around that is kind of shocking, and it's uh, it's fascinating. We've all been involved in these trials and development and primary outcomes for 20-plus years, and yet it never came to the forefront of maybe we should start asking the most important question for patients and their reported outcome, which is urgency, and you'll see a lot of that data tonight. So just as a reminder, fecal incontinence, which is defined as the involuntary loss of liquid or stool, but urge incontinence is the accidental loss when a pe person is unable to reach a toilet. I mean, that's really what keeps our patients isolated, is what if I have an urgent need to go to the bathroom and there's no bathroom around me, which should translate to the fact now we know why patients are wearing diapers. And so this sort of concept of being able to explain it and understand that this is a major symptom report, I mean, greater than 80% of patients will report that urgency is a part of their symptom complex. 
Um, they report having it at least once a day. And we've talked about it, that we have patients who have one bowel movement a day. But if it's urgent or they've had an accident, they would rather have 10 controlled bowel movements than actually have one bowel movement that resulted in them having an accident or having urge incontinence. So remember, it's it's sort of what our patients want us to ask about, and it's part of what patients want their drugs to work towards, which we've never connected, which, again, speaks to the importance, I think, of the data that Dave's particularly going to show you. So I think the, the concept of reminding ourselves, and Emily did an amazing job of hitting every single one, social avoidance, uh, lack of control, I couldn't get in a long car, um, the stigma, uh, as well as everyday functioning. And I think, and Dave is going to introduce a term that I think we should use more often, uh, sort of focusing on the concept of how are our patients functioning in the day-to-day when they're not seeing us during those 15 minutes four times a year. Because really, when care happens is when they leave our office, right? That's where the continuous support for our patients really kicks in, and that's where patients need an understanding and our therapies to be able to address these really important symptoms. So this was interesting. This was part of another study that Dave and I were a part of called the UC Narratives, and it was across global survey similar to the Confide that I'm going to share with you in a moment. But looking at, this is in Japan. Now, they have very different approaches. They have different uh, amount of time that they have. I think, Dave, they may have five minutes with Professor Hebe, maybe, right? Um, so there's a different sort of even time that they have with their uh, true professor gastroenterologist. And just when you ask them in a survey, because very, you know, it would have been difficult for them, because even Professor Hebe, when he saw the data, he couldn't believe it because this is not what he gets when he asks his questions in those five minutes. <laughs> but the idea being is, you know, how often are you anxious about not making it to the toilet uh, in time, more than 50% noted yes along a scale. And then similarly, uh, how often do you have soiling in the last two weeks? You're talking about a third of our patients. I mean, th- this is everyday life for our patients. And this was particularly in the Japanese population. And then this is the start of CONFIDE. So unlike UC Narratives, the CONFIDE study, which was a, a survey, a patient survey, as well as to providers, and you're going to see amongst all of us sort of the disconnect, not surprisingly because I've been making that point, that providers and patients are not always focused on the same thing. So you, it won't surprise you that areas that we found out from the confide survey are not things that have ever been reported by one provider yet. So the idea of really focusing on understanding, and I like to focus specifically, obviously, I'm still traumatized around this concept of diapers, but the idea really that in when you look at U.S. and Europe, you can see that two-thirds of patients report um, a diaper. These are in all patients. And then when you look at patients who are on advanced therapy, meaning those that are beyond mesalamine um, or steroids, you can see that almost three-quarters of patients report wearing a diaper. I mean, if this doesn't sort of send, like, chills through everybody's spine in this room, including ours who have been in this space for 25 years, 
it is a major miss and needs and gap that we have not focused on until now. So it really is sort of an important moment for us to be able to share this data in this forum where it's really focused on the symptom that is important to the patient and not as much around, you know, the every phase three data point that you're going to see. You're going to see a snippet of it, but notice we're not leading with that because that's not where patients want us to lead with. They want us to lead with what matters most to you today. And so if we go further again, this is looking at a subset of the U.S. data set, which were, um, you can see here, when we talk about social events, I'm sorry, they're not stopping doing anything social because they have blood in their stool. That's irrelevant. What's stopping them from having going out and ha living their best life or living life to the fullest is the fear of incontinence and urgency. That's really what is blocking them from living their daily lives. And again, shocking for my colleagues who are gastroenterologists, you're probably thinking, well, I probably don't ask this enough about patients. Like, are they actually missing a lot of activities because of this? And of course, the de de, um, decline of social, of uh, physical exercise um, as well. So these are the things that are actually keeping our patients more isolated. They're not being isolated because they saw blood on the toilet paper. That's not what's isolating them. It's really the symptom. Um, and then when we ask providers, what do they think are the top three symptoms? This is a way of thinking about it. So you could see that, you know, patients talk about ever or currently, regardless. You see that, you know, bowel urgency is a, is second to diarrhea in terms of these, um, symptoms that they're reporting. And look where bowel urgency lies when you ask a provider what they think is part of the big symptom complex of a patient. Nothing that the patient really <laughs> says is probably highest on their list. So this, uh, whenever we saw this data, um, we keep going back to the fact that there continues to be, and Dave and I, we did a, in, I don't even know when that was, 2013 UC Normal. There was another survey that we did. And again, it was such a big disconnect between what patients and providers viewed as important um, and the fact that patients accepted a new normal. And so the idea is that now that we have all these incredible therapies, there's no need to accept a new normal. Your new normal should be literally a new normal, uh, back to how it was before this all began. But I think I like to highlight the fact that there's a disconnect between um, providers and patients. This was another study looking at, and if I have any nurses or NPs in the room, I always tell my nurses, NPs, they're the empathetic arm of the provider team because they actually are the ones that say that urgency, because they're the ones getting the phone calls, they actually believe that urgency is the major um, patient-reported outcome that matters. And you could see where the providers uh, and the physicians are not so um, different, but the nurses are saying that they have a much um, really higher um, empathy for urgency and pain is funny that the that the nurses are like, they're calling me much more about urgency than they are in pain, but for providers thinking it's also more about pain. So I think there's, it's just interesting the way that people um, perceive these symptoms differently and how we each approach these PROs in a different way. And I think uh, if we can start to elevate, which we will, and I think in 2023, there's going to be a big elevation because I see a lot of other companies even trying to look retrospectively, did we measure urgency correctly? And how can we actually communicate using quality of life measures, whatever measure you can do retrospectively to highlight the fact that urgency is a big deal. 
And again, we're so focused on, wow, you're, you know, we want you to have mucosal healing. We, we want your calprotectin to be less than 200. And they're like, I don't care about any of that. What I want to know is that I'm not going to have, I'm going to have resolution of pain and urgency, and I'm actually going to have a really nice quality of life. If you can tell me that in the long game, that's going to get me there, but I need something in the short term that's actually going to impact my life immediately. Because as far as I know, a normal, you know, a normal scope on colonoscopy, what does that even mean? And again, we are so disconnected and that's part of the big issue that we continue to struggle with is how do we raise the conversation, which I'm hoping tonight that if everyone, I said before it started, I said, if one person goes back to their clinic tomorrow or Wednesday and asks the patient if they wear diapers or protection for fear of urge incontinence, I've changed one person's life. And that's, that's the, the beauty of this sort of forum and opportunity to do that. So again, this is just showing again sort of the gap between, um, you know, the idea that can you imagine, and my provider friends could imagine saying, if it's a problem, they'll bring it up. And the patients are saying, I'm too embarrassed to bring it up. Yet another continental divide between sort of how we think that it would be reported to us, but patients are very embarrassed. There's a lot of shame around having an accident. Do you think they want to bring that up at their visit while our hand is on the doorknob, while we're about to go out at minute 14 and 58 seconds? They're not going to start the conversation that I want to know. I just want you to know I had an accident. It's just not going to happen. There's a lot of shame and embarrassment, which is why we find this out on anonymous surveys, right? That's the whole point of it is that it's through this that we can shape our future education, the way that we communicate with our patients, and also the way of, of treatment effect moving forward. And this is just emphasizing, again, in the U.S., before I showed you at least once in the last three months, this is in the last, in the last week sometime, or we're at at least once a week in the last three months. I mean, almost 50% of our patients. So that we can say is the right answer, by the way, for the polling question. So it wasn't five. It wasn't 10, 20. It wasn't 30. It was 50. Pretty remarkable that one in every two patients who walk in the door in your clinic will have worn a diaper in the last week. None of us ask that question. I know that for a fact. So, you know, now it's changed because I've learned a lot through being involved with this incredible initiative, but it's still shocking every time I see it. And at DDW, we presented the data from Confide as it relates to sexual activity. Um, I talked about social activities. I talked about physical activities or physical fitness um, exercise. Here's just showing you the patients who avoided um, sexual activity in the last three months. That was, you could see a lot of our survey was all about in the last three months, but, um, and you could see that, um, 77% of females and over half of the men describe that they avoided sexual activities. You want to know why? Not shocking. You know, the theme of the, of the meeting. It's because of urgency and fear of incontinence. So every single day to day living life to my fullest as a patient with UC, is completely dominated by fear of an accident and urgency. <laughs> They're not not having sexual activity because of rectal bleeding. I think, again, it's sort of for us to actually 
Um, obviously, decreased sexual desire when you're not feeling well. There's, we know that effect of meds, steroids, for example. But at the end of the day, it needs to be, you know, if someone could yell this from the rooftops as loud as they can so that all 16, 17,000 of us in the, in the U.S. could actually be asking this question, then we can all rest. But until that happens, we need to really be sort of the blowhorn for this problem. So we know that until more recently, we, and I'll, we'll show you that data, there hasn't been a way to really assess uh, urgency numerically or on a continuous scale, and we'll talk about that. Instead, it's been, do you have urgency? Yes, no. Even in my drop-down in Epic, it's yes, no. There's no, how severe is it? How long does it take you to go to the bathroom, et cetera? So I think, you know, reminding ourselves that it's the most important, if not one of the most important symptoms that patients want to gain control over. That is why patients tell you they don't feel in control. That is why there's anxiety, because they lose control of what they eat, they lose control of their bowel. It is completely on us to give them back the control um, that they need. So as I noted that it is reported, you know, if you look head-to-head versus providers, providers, only a quarter of providers say that this is relevant. Over half of our IBD patients say, please help me with this problem. We know that um, up uh, two-thirds of all patients have um, decreased sexual activity. We know that three quarters on advanced therapies wear a diaper, at least in the last three months, and 50% have worn it once in the last, you know, once a week. I mean, shocking. So I think understanding that and building the communication gap between physicians and providers, uh, physicians and patients is going to be, you know, my goal and our goal together for 2023. So let's review, first of all, what the definition of clinical remission is in ulcerative colitis. Clinical remission in ulcerative colitis is similar in clinical practice to what we've adopted and used for most of our clinical trials, which is the Mayo score that was developed originally for a delayed-release mesalamine formulation. And the Mayo score has a number of parameters, and they score based on how you're doing in those parameters. And the traditional and more recent clinical remission definition includes stool frequency, rectal bleeding, and endoscopic finding scores. Stool frequency is the number of normal number of stools that is normal for this patient, or one to stool two stools more than normal. Rectal bleeding traditionally was no blood seen or streaks of blood less than half the time, and the endoscopy findings were either normal-slash-inactive disease or mild, defined as erythema, faded vascular pattern, and mild friability, the score of zero or one. This has evolved over time to the clinical trial endpoints of no blood seen, but the stool frequency score of zero or one and the endoscopic findings of zero or one. You'll note, however, that in these endpoints that are still part of our clinical trials that lead to regulatory approval of therapy, and arguably many of you in practice think about them, do not include urgency. In addition, we've been trying to move the field forward across some other endpoints. This is from the consensus statement called STRIDE-2. It's an international group of experts who got together and voted on what should we be treating patients to achieve. And in STRIDE 2, it was updated from the original STRIDE consensus to include a time course of short-term targets, 
intermediate-term targets and longer-term targets. And even though in ulcerative colitis, those targets were defined as improvement in symptoms and the absence of bleeding and improvement in stool frequency and the recognition that ultimately we'd like to get to endoscopic improvement or even endoscopic normalization, we also acknowledge that we could use surrogates like fecal calprotectin or CRP. You'll notice that in stride two, urgency didn't make the cut. It was not yet on the list of targets that we should be trying to achieve when treating people with ulcerative colitis. We also had a couple other endpoints of interest that are evolving. One of them is treatment to histological healing, and the other one was um, transmural healing for Crohn's disease. Those are things we're working on. So we think that in stride three, urgency is going to be included, as will some of these other evolving endpoints, and in part because of the new work that's been going on. So when you think about managing ulcerative colitis, there's a few other things that we want to make sure you keep in mind. Obviously, the major takeaway message tonight is that we want you to be asking about urgency and we want you to address it with your patients. It also includes, though, addressing extra-intestinal manifestations and the traditional ones of joint pain or skin involvement or the potential of eye inflammation have been uh, added to by pain, fatigue, mental health, and sexual dysfunction, and you heard a little bit more about that already. And there's been a focus on longer-term outcomes, moving towards disease modification in IBD and specifically in UC, so we can avoid the bad outcomes and, of course, do so in a cost-effective manner. Marla also introduced you to a topic and a term that I've been using, which is we want to achieve functional remission. Because we can talk all day long about stool frequency and absence of rectal bleeding, but if the patient is not able to function because we're missing something else, and in the case of tonight's discussion, urgency would be one of those things, or because they're unable to function because they're afraid of having a relapse or suffering urgency on their way to work or going to a social function, then we haven't finished our job yet. And in clinical practice, and I would argue in the evolving endpoints of clinical trials, we should be moving towards a functional remission endpoint. And I would add the term sustained. Sustained functional remission is where we want to be. Now, when we talk about bowel urgency and disease activity, the immediate assumption might be that if there's inflammation, there's urgency. And if there's no inflammation, there's no urgency. But the clinical practitioners in the room know that that's not the case. We do certainly appreciate that the absence of bowel urgency is strongly associated with improved clinical and endoscopic outcomes. That has been shown. And that the absence of bowel urgency is associated with improved quality of life. That's all accepted. The challenge, however, is that it's not always the case that this is true. In fact, look at these data. Urgency may persist despite treatment for UC and when disease is considered inactive by our usual definitions. In fact, 50% of patients with IBD experience bowel urgency during what we would otherwise define as inactive disease, half. That's that one out of two people that Marla mentioned to you. In addition, in a couple other analyses, even when patients said they were under control, 37% of them said that they still had urgency. So their definition of being under control might be that it's less than it was before, but they're still experiencing this very disabling symptom. And in another analysis, again, from the Japanese group, 35 to 39% of the patients had urgency, even when their stool frequency or rectal bleeding scores were zero. So we're missing a very important variable here. 
Now, the good news is that many of our guidelines around the world are starting to incorporate urgency in discussions. I'm proud of the fact that we contributed directly to those ulcerative colitis guidelines from the American College of Gastroenterology that added urgency. But you'll also notice that urgency has been added to uh, the AGA care pathway and guidelines. Um, the NICE guidelines in the UK include um, discussing urgency, or at least recognizing that it's a symptom of active disease or relapse. And you can see also that ECHO has some statements related to urgency. And so more and more of this is coming up. Now, as usual, when you're trying to advance the state of a disease control, the devil becomes the details. And we have to think a little bit more about that. In the ACG guidelines from 2019, we created a new disease activity index. And this was somewhat aspirational. We added urgency. And we didn't have a scale to use. We literally made this up where we said, well, none would be good. That's remission. And then it's something else for the rest of the categories there. We also added fecal calpro and endoscopic measurements. But this was important to us. And we knew that this was something that we wanted to raise awareness among our colleagues. So what will it take to advance bowel urgency as an endpoint in IBD? Well, we need to have a definition that is agreed upon. And Marla gave you some definitions. We need to have our guidelines and consensus statements include urgency as an issue of importance and a, an important topic. And we are moving in that direction. We need validated measures of urgency. And you're going to hear a little bit more about that from Subratus shortly. We want investigators and clinical trialists like us and some of you to be working on it as an endpoint, to demand that it's included in clinical trials and that we study it more. We certainly need our clinical trials to be successful in terms of their recruitment, which is another crisis we're facing in IBD. And in order to do this and move this field forward, we certainly need to do the trials and get patients into them. We want urgency to be a significant finding that distinguishes it from other patient-reported outcomes. So I've already told you that patients can have urgency even when the other PROs are normal. So we'd like to understand more how this happens and then to push for controlling that. It might be a distinct label of a therapy that receives regulatory approval. And then lastly, we certainly need to study this more to understand all those gaps of why patients may have improvement in remission uh, from the standard definitions but still have persistent urgency and understand more why this is occurring for other reasons and what the time course might be for resolution of urgency. So let me give you a couple brief examples. We're going to start with upadacitinib, the newest therapy approved in the United States for the treatment of moderate to severe ulcerative colitis. This is a selective JAK1 inhibitor, and the results I'm showing you here are from one of the induction trials that led to its regulatory approval called UACHIEVE. And you'll note that with the upadacitinib trial, they included urgency, but in this trial, the definition of urgency was either it was present or not. It was, it was essentially a binary variable. And what you'll notice there is that among patients who achieved remission, look at the bar chart on the right side of the screen, urgency was significantly less frequent than those who were not in remission. So you might say, okay, see, it correlates. But it's not always the case. There are many examples where this doesn't happen. I'll also point out to you what, something else we've talked about, which is when you look at quality of life and you even break it down into the physical and mental components of the quality of life analyses, you can see that having urgencies associated with worse quality of life, worse physical and worse mental scores as well. 
So even though this is an effective therapy and achieved its endpoints and being on the therapy had less urgency overall, it highlights some of the points about how important this is, but also that there are patients that are exceptions to all this as well. The other example I'll share with you is for mirikizumab, which is a P19 subunit inhibitor, which is selective to IL-23. These results I'm showing you are the induction results at week 12 in a study called Lucent 1, and specifically here was the use of an urgency numeric rating scale that Subrata will teach you more about. So you can see on the left side of the slide the clinical response rates that the therapy was better than placebo at week 12, as well as endoscopic and histological endpoints, but I want to highlight for you this very nice uh, evaluation of urgency over time where you can see a separation from placebo and improvement in urgency as early as two weeks, and then that separates greater all the way out to the 12-week endpoint there. So clearly with uh, mirakizumab in this induction trial, using a numeric scale of change over time, you can see early improvement in urgency. That's nice, but let's look carefully at a couple other things. This is being presented at ACG as a poster was presented today by Marla, and what you're seeing here was the response at week four. So remember that this was a 12-week induction study. But looking as early as week four, what you're seeing on the left here, those bars, are people who had um, the resolution of urgency. So it's urgency remission, as will be defined by Subrata, but let's accept what that is for now. And you'll note that whether they were on placebo or drug, when they had urgency remission, we had a very high success rate across the other endpoints of the trial. In other words, it correlated with clinical response, clinical remission, endoscopic remission. But what I want to point out to you is that look at the gap between the result there and 100%, meaning that you have patients who, despite having the absence of urgency and achieving a definition of clinical remission, you still have a large number who are still having urgency you, so, in, for example, in clinical remission, you've got 46% uh, of the patients who had placebo and absence of urgency, or urgency remission as defined, who uh, were defined as clinical remission. That's more than 50% who didn't get there, and similarly with the therapy. So there's a gap between understanding traditional definitions and looking at urgency. And then if we follow out mirakizumab to maintenance results in the Lucent 2 trial, you can see here similarly that patients who had had a response in induction and then were randomized in maintenance, of those who achieved clinical remission, you can see that there's a resolution of urgency in people on therapy that persists out to the endpoint of the maintenance trial, but there's lots of patients who don't have it under control. So this is essentially a missed point that we have that persists in many patients with UC. And I think Marla and I are making a very compelling argument about why this needs more work. So I hope I've given you some ideas both for your practice as well as the evolving use of urgency in clinical trials as an endpoint and the need for so much more work. So I want to remind you that we think UC treatment goals should now include control of urgency. I routinely ask patients, are you having form stools? How often are you going? Do you have urgency? Do you see blood? Do you sleep through the night without bowel movements? Are you able to pass gas without fear of leaking? And so two of my five questions that I routinely ask in clinic have to do with urgency, and I would encourage you to think similarly. Investigators and clinical trialists should continue working to include bowel urgency as an endpoint. Bowel urgency is obviously 
being increasingly recognized in our guidelines and consensus statements, but I think we would all agree that there is much more work that needs to be done to better understand some of the other components of this, whether it's psychological, submucosal fibrosis, reduced rectal compliance, bile salts, uh, functional overlap, there are many reasons to think that there are other contributors to this, but the bottom line is this is a very important symptom that we need to do a better job understanding. Thank you very much. So um, I will give the, um, the last presentation regarding getting to the bottom of bowel urgency and really talk about tools that are evolving that we can use in our clinic, which is critical. I mean, you heard from Amala the, the really kind of desperate impact of urgency on our patients' lives, and indeed a very a passionate plea and almost a cry for help from um, the video clip you heard from the patient and from uh, David you heard about the clinical uh, practice relevance and clinical trial relevance of urgency and the fact that um, these are getting measured, uh, progress is being made, but there is still a fair degree of uh, unmet need. Uh, the same study, the Japanese study, showed rather um, counterintuitive that, in fact, the patient's age group, you, you might have thought that as they grow older, um, they have um, less difficulty to consult on urgency. If anything, that doesn't seem to be the case. As they grow older, they have even more a difficulty to consult um, predominantly because of the embarrassment factor. So um, this is something that um, we had designed with uh, EFCA, which is a um, European patient society. And uh, it shows that um, the communication, the connection uh, of the patient and the healthcare provider, and there are the different tasks of the patient and different tasks of the healthcare provider, um, is, uh, is not perfect. I mean, only in a small number of uh, cases, um, and this is schematic, um, the quality of life could be assessed from a perfect communication between the patient and their healthcare provider. And I, I think that um, one of the things that is emerging out of this is um, embarrassment is a big, big barrier to communication. Uh, patients, therefore, may not be prepared to discuss that but we should query the patients about urgency at every visit, if possible. But even from the healthcare provider side, there is a time factor, and therefore we need to have tools that can help us to do this. So this is the kind of communication and advice for patients um, from the same AFCA study, what to, talk to, uh, to say to the patients, and the tools and advice. You can see inquiring about urgency using questionnaires. But... Um, we saw that you, you generally ask the patient about it if you do that, but um, questionnaires are not very often used. Um, determine the relationship with evidence of um, active inflammation, and you heard from David that that is um, not a perfect one-to-one -one equation at all by any means. Uh, inquire associated with uh, incontinence. Require if urgency improves with improvement of rectal bleeding and diarrhea. And again, you kind of looked at some of the correlation, imperfect correlation uh, from David. And the tools and advice, and this is a place where 
Uh, patient societies have often taken a lead up till now, giving dietary advice, locations of washrooms, washroom cards, information about patient association, and a reliable websites to kind of go to. But uh, there is still a lot to be done, and you saw that these recent surveys um, uh, show that there is a lot of unmet need. So David touched upon this. How do we assess bowel urgency, therefore? Um, once we agree that this is a very important and um, neglected symptom, neglected by healthcare providers particularly uh, because we don't ask it, though I think the response from um, this audience was, um, was better than many others I had seen, which is great. Um, so there are several PROs being developed by um, FDA guidance that includes uh, measures of urgency. And these include, and I will show them very briefly to you, symptoms and impact questionnaire um, in ulcerative colitis, and I will show um, an example of that. Ulcerative colitis patient recorded outcome signs and symptoms. And then finally, and I will focus on that, is the um, urgency numeric rating scale, the um, UNRS, you might shorten it to. The first is the domains and subdomains in the CQC, um, the first one. And you can see here that there are four symptom domains and there are six impact domains. And you can see uh, very um, gratifyingly, urgency is right at the top of the symptom domain. And it shows also the impact, especially uh, embarrassment and fear of incontinence is pretty high. But it is one of multiple items on these two domains and subdomains, which makes it difficult to tease out this problem amidst all these other um, symptoms that are all relevant. So this is the UCPRO uh, signs and symptoms, SS, and it is a nine item daily diary. There are two scales uh, scored separately, bowel signs and symptoms scale and abdominal symptoms scale. And in the bowel signs and symptoms scale, there is urgency. It is um, phrased somewhat differently. It is the um, severity of the need to um, have the uh, bowel movements, um, 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 uh, bowel movements um, right away. So I mean, that, that is a, a slightly different phrase. It says the same thing, that you have to go, um, you can't wait, you have to go right away. And it is there as a, as a part of the scale. And finally, this one, and um, oh, I, you know, this has been a great contribution by Marla um, in devising, designing, and validating the urgency um, NRS, as I mentioned, um, the numeric rating scale for urgency, specifically designed for urgency. And you can see that this is a 11-point um, scale, no urgency is zero, and that is, in my word, that is a part, an important part of functional remission. And that needs to be sustained, as David stressed. Then 1 to 10 are the severities. The higher the number, the more severe or worse is the urgency. And the way you can capture this over a seven-day period is really have a weekly average score, um, which is calculated as a mean score over the seven-day period. And that gives you uh, an estimate of the severity. And uh, that is very useful because um, even when you talk to a patient, I think it is difficult to estimate the exact severity of it. I think um, 
that conversation is never um, uh, fully fleshed out. So this gives us a tool, and it is very simple. Um, it can be done while the patient is waiting in their um, waiting room, for example, within a minute and a half or two minutes or even less, quite frankly. And if, if, if you see that, you can initiate the conversation rather than the patient having to say that or um, you are asking the patient and they get slightly taken aback and feel embarrassed. So you can see here um, the utility in clinical trials and clinical practice. Of course, it is very easily understood and, um, and they, patients feel that um, they, um, they can give an appropriate response to this question, question that this uh, scale quite easily. Um, the results support urgency NRS as a, um, you know, a well-defined, um, content-validated, and con construct-validated, and it is um, reliable, and it is feasible. Uh, it does not rely on any specific uh, descriptors uh, which are not relevant. This has been a big problem in the past because the FDA um, never... Um, quite accepted in the past that urgency can be defined precisely. And now actually adopting the uh, UNRS gives us the opportunity of doing that. It's a single item, so it is not hidden amongst a whole bunch of other symptoms. And it moves beyond um, uh, yes, no. You, you saw the data from one of the clinical trials, the uh, the JAK1 inhibitor upadacitinib trial, where it was a yes, no response but this gives a severity scale. So I'm going to summarize now. First of all, urgency is an important but often overlooked uh, PRO in UC. And that can't be stressed even more, and I think we have been amiss to some extent in not giving it enough emphasis. Patients with UC may not mention urgency due to embarrassment, and that's a frequent event. Uh, a simple communication strategies are required to appreciate urgency, and urgency needs to be monitored using simple tools. And um, I do believe that the urgency NRS that you saw is a very reliable, construct-valid, and content-valid tool that um, almost certainly will be used uh, fairly widely, um, not only in clinical trial context, but also perhaps in clinical practice to begin that conversation with a patient and appreciate the problem they're facing. I'm going to start by asking, Dave, there's a discussion around whether we separate urgency to be only a UC thing, or um, do we understand the role of urgency in Crohn's disease, and is this an IBD thing as a totality, and are they the same, urgency in a Crohn's versus urgency in UC? What are your thoughts? Well, I'll start, and then I think Subrata can add to this, because urgency is not an IBD thing. It's an IBD and a functional bowel uh, problem, and it's a general issue across the board, and we can learn a, a bit more from the work that came way before us in the functional world. But um, specific to the Crohn's question, patients with Crohn's disease have urgency too, and they have urgency even when they do not have rectal inflammation, uh, they may have urgency related to rapid transit, bile salts, post-operative um, conditions that lead to some of those things, malabsorption proximally with fecal overload that leads to um, 
incontinence or an urgency. And of course, perianal disease with leakage contributes to those symptoms as well. So this is absolutely something that we need to know more about in Crohn's. Of course, we've tackled it in UC as an area where we wanted to specifically try to get a handle on it because of the inflammation and involving treatments for that area. But that's what leaves that gap that I pointed out to you, which is that as we get better at healing the bowel and treating the condition of UC, we need to understand what explains the difference between those who have improvement in endoscopic or even histologic endpoints, yet still suffer from urgency. And I think that there should be parallel work occurring in Crohn's disease. Maybe, Sobrata, you can share some of the early work you did related to this in the functional world. No, absolutely. And as you rightly said, um, urgency is a very important disability in, um, in ulcerative colitis, but also in Crohn's disease. And, um, and um, urgency is a multifactorial thing physiologically. That, that is one of the things that underlies um, underlies um, the reason why urgency may persist in some patients, even though they seemingly have um, reached remission by our current criteria, and we need to d dive back into it. But th there is a lot of other diseases. In functional disease, um, um, several uh, visceral hypersensitivity molecules, um, especially the TRIP-V ion channels, um, we have shown that these are uh, upregulated and um, they give rise to visceral hypersensitivity, which actually some of that is um, a part of erectile hypersensitivity that gives rise to urgency. Uh, that is one of the mechanisms of urgency, not the only mechanism of it. Um, but you can get the same things if you have, say, a radiotherapy for prostate cancer, which affects the rectum, and that gives rise to urgency. And, um, and um, in situations where um, the rectal compliance is lost because of chronic inflammation, which is a factor in ulcerative colitis, a significant factor, they may actually um, have um, urgency um, almost as a component of their chronic disease. And you, you probably know that some of these patients have um, very little inflammation, but they have a um, very damaged colon and a damaged rectum, and they have urgency and diarrhea, and they may even end up actually uh, having to remove their colon because there's no other solution. So uh, it kind of just comes back and swings back to the fact that we need to deal with inflammation quickly and bring it under remission as completely as possible because some of these elevated uh, visceral hypersensitivity molecules are driven by TNF, and the longer the inflammation lasts, the, the more the likelihood that they will become permanent or persistent. Yeah, I think also the... We talk about that, I mean, in my, in my pregnancy clinic, I'll, I talk about that chronic rectal inflammation is not good, right? This idea that just chronic, untreated inflammation is, is not going to result in the best pelvic floor concept. You know, we talk a lot about it versus vaginal versus C-section. So I really talk a lot about this. But Dave, one of the questions that relates to this is if you have endoscopic normal, right? No blood, no diarrhea. Spread a sort of notion around compliance of the rectum. Your work really is focused on the fact that there are other reasons we need to consider. Maybe talk a little bit about what do you do in that case clinically? Because that's really the question is, all right, I've done my best with my meds. The patient has no, you know, classic symptoms there, but yet I'm still dealing with a lot of issues around pelvic floor and continence and urgency. Well, we've been talking about this, um, and uh, a 
pragmatic approach as clinicians, what is the appropriate workup here? So obviously you start by trying to treat the inflammation. The work we published in Gastro last year looked at rectal compliance using a barostat, and we compared it to people undergoing colonoscopies who didn't have IBD. And the interesting thing we found was that the people who had inflammation had the, the lowest rectal compliance, not a surprise. People who were in remission histologically, so quiescent disease on biopsies with no endoscopic inflammation, had reduced compliance compared to controls. But the, the finding we didn't expect was that people who had normalization of their histology, a history of UC, but the biopsies were normal, their compliance looked like the healthy controls. The implication there, which needs to be proven, is that if you get people to a deep level of remission that lasts, uh, there may be bowel remodeling or maybe the avoidance of um, compliance complications altogether. Now, in terms of the clinical workup, don't forget, of course, that I think an underappreciated problem we deal with in IBD is pelvic floor disorders and, um, you know, anorectal dyssynergy and um, other complications related to that. I think that that often is a problem, and unfortunately, it can lead to major issues if somebody undergoes proctocolectomy and gets an ileal anal pouch, because if we haven't addressed their pelvic floor issue, it's going to cause trouble when they're trying to use a J pouch. So there's, um, I think, a standard workup here, and we shouldn't be driving home the point that everything is inflammation, because clearly it's not. And the clinicians in the room appreciate that. And all we need to do now is figure out what's the right sequence of workup and evaluation for these people. I completely agree with what Marla said, not just in a pregnancy clinic, but I keep telling my patients that even if you're, if you're um, uh, adjusted and able to live with, with the it. inflammation by working from home, or by having access to a restroom when you need it, uh, and you don't mind, quote-unquote, having this, there's a consequence to chronic inflammation, not just in, in bowel damage in both UC and Crohn's, but also in other things we're learning about now, like heart, uh, cardiovascular morbidity, uh, and even the potential for degenerative uh, neurologic disorders. So chronic inflammation is bad not just for your quality of life, but for your general health. And we keep trying to make sure people understand this and that they get the treatments they need and that we're doing our jobs. And I'd also say that we'll get soon some of the Crohn's-related urgency data, but um, not surprising, and the question was right, is that um, it was also shocking to learn that this is as much maybe a problem in Crohn's, as you see, but the etiology is different, perhaps. And I think to me, and I sort of, that's been a major focus of mine, is the role of mind-body and the role of anxiety, stress, and worry on our patients and urgency is probably one of the ways that it's manifested. And I think understanding and um, the group at Lilly have actually, you know, heard me say this many times that it's similar if you have one accident because we were talking about the role of understanding mental health in all of this, you have one accident, you set the cycle where, you know, there's a huge pelvic floor issue because there's a lot of concern and fear about having another one, and it really starts this cycle that it's really hard to break, and it becomes centrally mediated, as I noted, and not so peripherally mediated anymore because it becomes this conversation that you're so having. So here's the study that I thought of this morning. For anyone oh, who's at the... Hot off the press. Pre yeah. <laughs> presidential plenary, one of the abstracts presented was the use of virtual reality to treat functional dyspepsia, and they showed a significant difference compared to the sham 
intervention, which was the, the doggles, but just two-dimensional images of nature or something. Um, and I thought that maybe this can be an adjunctive approach to helping people who have these symptoms uh, as we're treating their inflammation. So that, I think that's a nice study to come. And Marla, I, mean, you, you, I, I think what you said is almost certainly going to be correct, and um, we should do more studies, that um, a significant, um, even a single episode of profound urgency that leads to incontinence, especially in public, uh, uh, scars a patient's emotion for um, most of their life, and they live in fear of that, even if their rectum has become in remission, which aggravates the whole situation of the functional problems. Yeah. Yeah, I think we've sure. got a lot to learn, and um, the time is up, and we, I, I sort of weave many of these questions in um, along the way. But I want to thank both of you for um, being such strong advocates of this topic and for being amazing speakers and, and educators, and thank all of you for uh, sharing the evening with us. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.